Spielman and Hooley, We Tackle Life podcast. They can see 500 now, Spiels. The question is, can they find the off-ramp to 500 as they play at Wisconsin on uh, Sunday? And uh, we don't know if they're going to have Luther Muhammad. He hurt his shoulder last night. And, uh, but he was back on the bench and cheering uh, his heart out. And I hope he was cheering for Caleb Wesson, who I've been hard on at times. But boy, Caleb Wesson was fantastic last night. Yeah, Caleb Wesson was fantastic at Michigan. And we're going to need him to be fantastic at Wisconsin. As that is where the basketball Buckeyes can get to 500 on Sunday. They'll tip it off at noon. And the Cole Center is a tough place to play. Hi, everybody. Uh, that is a Friday edition of the Spielman and Hooley We Tackle Life podcast. I'm Bruce Hooley solo today, and I apologize for the late release of said podcast. Uh, we had a little technical issue this morning. True confession, this is the uh, second edition of the Friday edition of the We Tackle Life podcast. The first one was uh, recorded hot, as they say, and I didn't want to put you through it on uh, the listening end. So uh, hopefully we've got that figured out. Hopefully it will post fine, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy the content today as we're without Mr. Spielman. He is in Florida. He is enjoying uh, some time away uh, with his family. He will be back Monday when we'll know how the Buckeyes fare at the Cole Center, which is, in my view, among the hmm, three toughest venues in the Big Ten. Uh, Michigan State is at the top. It's not just because it's uh, close quarters and well-constructed to the advantage of the Spartans, but it's because of the quality of the team and the coach you encounter there. I'd put Indiana and Bloomington in there, too. The acoustics in there can get very, very loud, and, you know, you always get hosed at Indiana by the officials. At least that's what uh, 10-year-old Bruce uh, came to believe way back in the Bob Knight era, and it's pretty much what uh, way more than 10-year-old Bruce still <laughs> believes about playing at Indiana. Um, but Cole Center's right there. Cole Center built about the same time Value City Arena was built, and they did a better job building a multi-purpose hockey and basketball arena. Now, it's not as ornate as Value City Arena. It doesn't have the terrazzo floors, and it doesn't have... And they've done a great job at Value City with the concession areas and tweaking it and making it more fan-friendly. I'm just talking about from an acoustic perspective, Value City Arena is not a great home environment for the Buckeyes. If you got 19,500 people in there and you're good and everybody's energized and all that, yes, but you know, you can hear the ball bounce and the shoes squeak when you're playing teams that don't excite the fan base or when the play of the home team doesn't excite the fan base. But the Cole Center is loud, man, and the Badger fans really get into it. And because of Ohio State's dominance in football, nobody ever tires of beating Ohio State. And so this will be a problem. Wisconsin beat Ohio State at Value City earlier this year. Uh, Wisconsin comes off an 18-point loss at Minnesota. They've got lots of drama in their program right now at uh, Wisconsin. Kobe King, who had 11 points in Wisconsin's win at OSU, quit the team earlier this week, and he blew up Greg Gard, the coach, in doing so. Said he's a tyrant, uh, basically just miserable to play for, which, you know, if you look at Greg Gard on the sidelines, I mean, he was a Bo Ryan assistant. Did Bo Ryan look like he was a lot of fun to play for? Mm-mm. But that doesn't mean you can't be a good coach. Uh, you have to be able to convey that you love your players and care about your players, but you can still be demanding of your players. And there are coaches who walk that line and do it well, and there are coaches who you know, stray from that line and don't do it well. And in Kobe King's opinion, Greg Gard strays from that line and doesn't do it well. Then, a day or two ago, the Wisconsin basketball team strength coach resigned amid a probe into him using a racial slur. He says that he repeated 
in telling a story of his days in the NBA, he repeated a story in which he quoted someone saying the objectionable term that he used. He does not not deny saying it. Whether he's, and you'll have to decide, and Wisconsin, I think, you know, look, if you're in a corporate environment and you're going to tell a story and it has an incendiary word in it like that, don't use the word. That's just smart not to use the word. And he used the word. Well, I don't think his story is a whole lot less authentic if he just skips over it. At any rate, he's out. So they have drama at Wisconsin. Now, will that drama galvanize them and make them harder to beat? Will it tear them apart and make them a train wreck? I mean, I, I don't wish ill on them. I just hope Ohio State wins the game. And so we'll see. But we'll find out from Chris Holman today what Luther Muhammad's status is for the game. They're very thin at guard with DJ Carton out. Uh, Holtman said Monday before they went to Michigan that Danny Hummer might have to get minutes in the backcourt, and I kind of thought, yeah, I don't know. Do you really expect to play Danny Hummer, who's a great kid? Uh, know his parents, great people, Upper Arlington kid. Uh, but now, I mean, if Luther can't go, it's conceivable Danny Hummer could get minutes. And so, Danny, you know, it's your moment, bud. Uh, go get him if you can. But Dwayne Washington and C.J. Walker have to play the way they played at Michigan. Caleb Wesson has to play the way he played at Michigan. But 500's in sight, and hopefully they can get there. Okay, now, a little football on the Buckeyes, and then we'll get back to basketball, but not this team in basketball. It's the NBA trade deadline week. We've had three Buckeyes dealt in the last few days, and I find that interesting in a whole bunch of ways, which we'll get to here. Let me first tell you about my Wednesday at Ohio State. National Signing Day. National Signing Day in February has become Thanksgiving. When I was a kid, Thanksgiving was a big deal in stores. Thanksgiving stuff out. Now Thanksgiving is steamrolled by Christmas. I mean, it's the the actual Christmas retail season steamrolls Thanksgiving. We go from Halloween, where there's all kinds of stuff in the stores for Halloween, costumes, candy decorations, la, la, la. And people decorate their homes now outside for Halloween like they do for Christmas. Thanksgiving is irrelevant. Thanksgiving is an afterthought. Thanksgiving is, uh, who cares about Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is now, <laughs> National Signing Day in February is now what Thanksgiving used to be. No, excuse me. It's now what Thanksgiving is now. Sorry. It's not that relevant because we have a signing day in December and the Buckeyes signed 24 of their 25 guys in December the only one who didn't sign Cameron Martinez signed the other day, and he was just waiting, kind of wanted to rethink things once Jeff Halfley took the Boston College job. So Cameron Martinez, player of the year in Michigan, is here. Julian Fleming, player of the year in Pennsylvania, is here. <laughs> I mean, the rich get richer. Because you think Michigan would want Cameron Martinez? You think Penn State would want Julian Fleming? Now, Ohio State, true confession, they didn't get the quarterback out of Cincinnati, Wyoming, Evan Prater. He's Mr. Football in the state of Ohio. So, you know, if you want to say, well, they didn't get the player of the year in Ohio, they didn't, but they got two quarterbacks rated higher than Evan Prater. I don't mean think that necessarily means Evan Prater is not going to be a great college quarterback for Luke Fickle at Cincinnati, if in fact he stays at Cincinnati, which we'll get to momentarily. But they got C.J. Stroud and Jack Miller, and I met them, and I met uh, Julian Fleming, and I met Mookie Cooper, and I met Paris Johnson. And uh, this will be the last time we get to talk to those guys for a long, long time. They put them in a bubble at Ohio State, and this is one of my great regrets. 
we don't get to know these guys like we used to get to know them in the old day. I'm friends with Greg Fry, Bobby Hoying. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, Jeff Rimmer you here and drop a bunch of names. I love you, Rims. <laughs> but I'm just saying, back when I covered Ohio State on a daily basis at the Plain Dealer, you could get to know the players. You could get to be friends with the players. I'm friends with Scooney. I'm friends with Mike Red. That's very difficult now because schools are, in my view, overly protective of players and coaches. I can't tell you that I have any real clue into what kind of guy Ryan Day is. I have an impression of Ryan Day from the way he talks at the podium about leadership and how he builds his team, but I don't I don't know and won't ever get to know Ryan Day unless things change. I won't ever get to know him the way I knew John Cooper. The way I knew Jim Trestle. Just won't happen. They just don't make him available anymore. And I think it's to the detriment of the kids, really. Uh Kerry Combs is a guy I'd like to get to know. Met Kerry Combs, Corey Dennis, both those guys talked at length. You all know Kerry Combs from afar as an, you know, bundle of energy and a real positive guy and all that. I'd love to get to know Kerry Combs. I'd love to sit and talk leadership with Kerry Combs. I'd like to hear about his experiences at Colerain and at the University of Cincinnati and here in the NFL. It's not going to happen because they just don't make him available. But I got to meet these young men and talk to these young men for four or five minute snippets and I'll just tell you my overriding impression of the Ohio State recruiting class. I don't know what kind of players they are. I'm going to trust the recruitniks who tell me they're great players. I assume Ohio State wouldn't want them if they weren't great players. They made a really good first impression. That's what I can tell you. They made a really good first impression in terms of humble enough. I mean, you can't be super humble uh, if you're a five-star and everybody in the world's been telling you for three years the universe revolves around your navel. It's kind of hard to be humble. They were very humble for their achievements. They were very down-to-earth. Paris Johnson's great young man. Uh, C.J. Stroud, super impressed with C.J. Stroud, super impressed with Jack Miller, with uh, uh, who was the the five-star, the other five-star on the SI All-America team. It's not Fleming. It's uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba, and I asked how to pronounce his name, and that is how I was told to pronounce it. Jackson Smith and Jigba from Rockwall, Texas. Really are uh, really smart young guy. Really smart young guy. Very, you know, I like the guys who look you in the eye when they talk to you. And they all did. Mookie Cooper, all of them. So very good uh, first impression of the Buckeye recruiting class. And I'm sure they'll be great players. And a couple of them will contribute as freshmen, most likely wide receivers, maybe some DBs. Uh, Paris Johnson may start on the offensive line. So we'll see. Uh, Ryan Day, you know, always liked hearing from Coach Day. Wish we'd hear from him more. Because if I don't hear from him more, you don't hear from him more. The reporters are your conduit to Ryan Day, and I think you love hearing from Ryan Day. He's never Ryan Day's never looked bad at a podium. He's, I don't think Ryan Day's ever said anything yet where I've gone, hmm, that's a little curious. I, I, he handled himself fantastic in the aftermath of the Fiesta Bowl loss when he could have gone in there and griped and belly ached and moaned and complained. He didn't do it. And so I was taken with that. Uh, very impressed with Ryan Day from a leadership standpoint. I, I got to believe Ryan Day's been impacted from a leadership standpoint by somebody, and I'd love to find out who that is because I'd like to avail myself of that person's wisdom. But we're not going to get Ryan Day to ever open up like that, and uh, that's just how things are done now. Uh, As far as Corey Dennis, uh, Corey Dennis made an allusion to the fact that people may be suspect of him because he's Urban Meyer's son-in-law and he may not be, in that kind of mindset's opinion, qualified to be the Buckeyes quarterback coach. Doug LaMaurice, Cleveland.com, did a great job hearing that. And the way the format works, once you get the mic and ask a question, you get to ask a follow-up or maybe a third follow-up. 
but you're never getting the mic back. Like, if you don't ask it then, you're never getting it back. So I had already asked my questions, I think, of Corey Dennis, and I wasn't getting the mic back to follow up on what he said. But Doug was listening closely, doing uh, the great job that Doug does for Cleveland.com, and followed up on Corey Dennis like, uh, hey, you know, you kind of alluded there. What does that mean? What do you think people think of you? And Corey Dennis was having none of it. He wouldn't go anywhere back to that comment. But it was telling to me there were two little things that nobody's going to quote, but there were two little things that were very telling to me. That was one where Corey Dennis made an allusion to the fact that people may be suspect of him because he's Urban Meyer's son-in-law. The other one was Kerry Combs at the podium, and it was the opening question, and Dave Biddle from Bucknuts said, Ryan's told us you're going to call the defenses. And Kerry Combs said really fast when Doug, when Dave Biddle said that, you're going to have the final say. And the word say was barely out of Dave Biddle's mouth when Corey, when Kerry Combs goes, yep. Now, Kerry Combs is so effervescent and so energetic, he jumps on every question and attacks it. So I don't, that's not a different timed response to the question but I just thought it was telling that he like affirmed that like you better believe it pal I got the last word then he went on and talked at length about collaborative effort with Greg Madison with Matt Barnes with Al Washington and it was genuine it it seemed very genuine if it wasn't genuine Kerry Combs should be you know acting in Hollywood because he put on a great act I don't think it's an act I think he's all about the Buckeyes all about the defense all about collaboration and all about everything you want him to be all about. But he is, in those moments, I think not going to be shy about saying, okay, well, we've all had our input. Now we're doing it this way. And he's the defensive coordinator. He's not the co-defensive coordinator. He's the coordinator. So he has that last say. Now he said, and I asked him, was this a condition of you coming back? You had to be the coordinator. He said, no, I'd never do that. Ryan offered him, apparently, according the takeaway I got, Ryan Day offered him coordinator. As opposed to saying, you know, Greg Madison's a co-coordinator. He makes a million one. So why don't you come in here as co-coordinator to replace Jeff Hafley, who was a co-coordinator. The way Kerry Combs portrayed it to us, he didn't say, I'll only come if I'm coordinator. So that must have been something Ryan Day offered. Now, I asked Kerry Combs, you've been gone two years with the Tennessee Titans. You were a knock-it-out-of-the-park secondary coach when you were here before with Gary and Conley. Denzel Ward, Malik Hooker, Marshawn Lattimore, and I'm probably leaving somebody out, uh, first-round picks into secondary. Von Bell's second-round pick. More, you know, tons of guys. I said, I assume you think you're a better coach because he's driven, Kerry Collins. He's always striving to get better, I'm sure. High-achiever guy. Why are you a better coach? He gave me a really articulate, three-pronged answer. He said, number one, there's more defenses in the playbook in the NFL. Can't play them all in college. Don't have the guys all day. But that was one reason he stays better. He's been exposed to more kinds of defense, more answers to dilemmas. Number two, he was exposed to a different leadership style. He said he really loves Mike Vrabel um, and that Vrabel's leadership style is much different than Urban Myers. It's different than Brian Kelly's. Those are guys that Kerry Combs has worked under. And the third reason he said in the NFL, it works different than college. In college and in high school, you pretty much tell guys what to do and they go do it. And in the NFL, you can tell guys what to do, but they want to know why they have to do it. Why are we playing three deep? Why are we playing quarters? Why are we playing single high safety? And Kerry Combs said, and I believe this is 
really true and very insightful on his part. When you're a coach and you have to explain it, it makes you understand the concept better, and in explaining it, it makes you a better coach. So those were three great answers from Kerry Combs on uh, the aspect of why he's a better football coach. So that's my impression of Wednesday National Signing Day, which is sort of a, oh, by the way, signing day now, that they have the December signing period. All right. This week was also NBA trade deadline week, and three Buckeyes were dealt within 48 hours of each other. Evan Turner goes from Atlanta to Minnesota. Kata Bates-Diop goes from Minnesota to Denver. Then D'Angelo Russell goes from the Golden State Warriors, where he just signed in the offseason, to Minnesota. Now, they were not all in the same deal. D'Angelo was not in the deal with Evan and Kata. That was a multi-team deal. Kata Bates-Diop ends up in Denver. So those are their new homes. All right, so when I heard this, my first thought was of D'Angelo Russell and Evan Turner were both the number two overall pick in the draft the years they came out. D'Angelo in 2015? Yeah, 2015 and Evan in 2010. D'Angelo Russell will be on his fourth NBA team in five seasons. Now, he's not a bust. He was an all-star. I believe last year or the year before in Brooklyn, he was an NBA all-star. For his career, D'Angelo Russell's averaged 17 points a game, and he's played an average of 29 minutes a game. Evan Turner's not a bust. Evan Turner's played 10 years in the NBA. This will be his sixth team. Sixth. And Minnesota supposedly is going to buy out Evan Turner, and then he's going to go to Boston. So he's been in Boston before, but I consider if you were in Boston, then you were in Portland, Atlanta, and Minnesota, well, Boston counts as that. To me, that's like another team. It's not another franchise, but it's another team. So Evan Turner's on his sixth team in 10 years and maybe headed for his seventh team in 10 NBA seasons. Evan Turner, for his career, has averaged just under 10 points a game, and he's played 27 minutes a game. 27 minutes a game. He's out there a lot. Kata Bates-Diop, he was not a number two overall pick. He was a second-round pick. But it looks like Kata's on that merry-go-round, too. When you're on your second team in two years, you know, that's kind of who you are. Now, of course, this made me harken back because everything basketball-wise makes me harken back to my favorite Buckeye player of my coverage era, and that's Jim Jackson, two-time All-American, National Player of the Year 1992, a great player in college, a very good player in the NBA. Jim Jackson averaged 33 minutes a game. He averaged 14 points a game over 14 seasons, and he played for 12 teams. He didn't play for a 13th, but he was on a 13th active roster. He got traded to the New Orleans, I think they were the Hornets then, the New Orleans Hornets, and he refused to report. So he got traded again. He got traded seven times in his NBA career. So I just thought of this. Here's Jim Jackson, fourth overall pick, really good, productive NBA player. D'Angelo Russell, second overall pick. Evan Turner, second overall pick. Both guys, really productive NBA players. Yet their NBA passport has stamp after stamp after stamp after stamp on it. Why? Jim Jackson played for more franchises than anybody in the NBA except Chucky Brown. In the history of the NBA! Why is that? The average NBA career is 
2.2 years. All these guys have blown way past that. But the average number of teams that a guy plays for is 2.5. Okay, so I guess if you're in the NBA an average of 2.2 years and you play for 2.5 teams, that tells you that everybody plays for a different team every year. But that's not the case. That's just not the case. I mean, for Jim Jackson to play for 12 teams, Evan Turner 6-10, and 10, D'Angelo Russell 4-5 and five years, that's an anomaly. What do they have against our great Buckeyes? What do they have against them? Because I'd put, in the last 30 years, Ohio State basketball, Jim Jackson's the best player that Ohio State has had. I think that's inarguable. Two-time All-American. I don't think we've had any other two-time All-Americans. Evan Turner, I'd put second. Hey, his numbers retired like Jimmy's. They didn't retire D'Angelo Russell's jersey. D'Angelo Russell, though, was a consensus. I'd forgotten this. He was a consensus All-American in his one year at Ohio State. So it's inarguable. They're good players. They're productive NBA players. But, boy, they get around, man. And this is the deal with the NBA. If you're drafted high like that and you're not a transformative franchise-changing player, they're probably going to lose patience with you. And you're on the move. So all three of these guys, I'd put Jimmy first, Evan second. I'd put D'Angelo Russell fifth in terms of the best Ohio State player. Maybe fifth might be a little high because I'd put, here are the two guys I'd definitely put ahead of him. I'd put Michael Red and Mike Conley ahead of him. And Mike and Mike, you're going to have to settle who's third and who's fourth on the golf course because I'm not picking between the two of you. Mike Red played here three years. Mike Red won an Olympic gold medal. Mike Conley's played longer in the NBA than Mike Red. Mike Red could say that's because his knees blew out, not because he wasn't good enough. Mike Red was an NBA all-star. I don't think Mike Conley ever has been, but boy, Mike Conley's a good player. Both of them made a bunch of money. Conley was the highest paid player in the NBA for like a little while. And uh, so D'Angelo would be no higher than fifth. I got to put my man Scooney ahead of D'Angelo, even though Scoon was not first team All-American. He led the Buckeyes to the Final Four with Michael Redd. So, but D'Angelo Russell's definitely a good player. So, you know. You don't turn an NBA team around right away, they're done with you. Unless you're Tristan Thompson, who's just a journeyman and apparently can't get out of Cleveland. So, uh, But that's not normal. That is not, not, not normal. Now, here's what is normal. Banging on the Cincinnati Bengals. Banging on the Cincinnati Bengals is normal, and the Bengals deserve much of it. They do. Look, they've done a lot of things wrong, and they have a very unusual team power structure with Mike Brown in charge of, you know, pretty much everything. Marvin Lewis handled everything. Now they got Zach Taylor and, you know, will it work or not? Duke Tobin and personnel, we don't know. But the but the thought is that the Bengals are going to draft Joe Burrow number one, and they should. It's perfect. He's a Heisman Trophy winner. He's a great year. LSU, he's from Athens, and I was through Athens last week, and I saw the big Joe Burrow billboard uh, on the highway coming into town. That's very well done. But there's been this building narrative in the national media that Joe Burrow doesn't want to play for the Cincinnati Bengals. They have taken everything Joe Burrow says and parsed it and twisted it. Dan Patrick did it the other day. Mike Florio's been doing it on Pro Football Talk. Because Joe Burrow will not come out and say, I want to play for the Cincinnati Bengals. I want to lead the Cincinnati Bengals to the Super Bowl. Now, Baker Mayfield did say that at the NFL Scouting Combine. And we don't know. Joe Burrow may say that if he goes to the Combine and throws. He may say that at the combine. He may want to put all this, I was going to say nonsense, maybe it's not nonsense. He wants to put all this, maybe he wants to put all this to bed. I don't know. 
But Florio is stacking up things that he knows to be true to build a case for something else he says is true that may not, in fact, be true. Here's what Florio is taking that's true. Joe Burrow is being coached by Jordan Palmer. That's true. Jordan Palmer is the brother of Carson Palmer. Carson Palmer at the Super Bowl said, Bengals aren't committed to winning. Okay, well, that's Carson's view because Carson's time in Cincinnati ended bad. But Carson also won 11 games one year, and if Carson hadn't unfortunately had Kimo Von Olhoffen collapse his left knee, we don't know how the Carson Palmer era would have ended in Cincinnati. But the Bengals won with Carson Palmer, and I think the fact that the Bengals didn't play Carson Palmer at all his rookie year and developed him for the future, and I would argue certainly set him up for future success, I think that disproves Carson Palmer's theory that the Bengals aren't trying to win. If the Bengals were just about tickets and excitement and all that, you draft a quarterback number one overall and you throw him in there. But they were about developing Carson Palmer. Have the Bengals ruined quarterbacks? That's a narrative out there. Bengals are death for quarterbacks. Well, as Bill Bender of the Sporting News pointed out, did the Bengals ruin Boomer Esiason? Did the Bengals ruin Ken Anderson? Did the Bengals ruin Jeff Blake? Did the Bengals ruin Andy Dalton? Jeff Blake had his pretty good run with the Bengals. Dalton had a good run with the Bengals. Carson had a good run with the Bengals. Boomer, Ken Anderson. You got to go back a ways. I mean, Achilles Smith? Did Achilles Smith, am I unaware, did he go somewhere else and crush it? David Klingler, did he go somewhere else and crush it? The Bengals have picked quarterbacks who haven't panned out. But I think their track record's a whole lot better on the quarterback end than, say, who could I come up with? Oh, that's right, the Browns. The Browns, yeah. You want to go be hanging around the quarterback graveyard, get on I-71 and drive four hours to Cleveland from Cincinnati. There's where they ruin quarterbacks. So I'll be interested to know if Joe Burrow lets this things sort of fester and continue. Monday, I'll talk to Spiels about this. Is Joe Burrow smart not to come out and say, yeah, I want to be a Bengal? Because what if the Bengals trade the pick? And you're now going to be a Dolphin. And you have to say, well, I I didn't know I was going to be a Dolphin. Or what if the Bengals fall in love with Chase Young and draft Chase Young number one, which would be stupid, uh, even though Chase Young is going to be a pretty good NBA, uh, pretty good NFL player and maybe a great NFL player, I do have some doubts about whether he's a one-trick pony with the speed rush because, honestly, Chase didn't affect as much as he affected other games. He did not affect the Michigan game, the Wisconsin game in the Big Ten title game, or the Clemson game, although he came very doggone close to knocking the ball away from Trevor Lawrence on the disputed scoop-and-score fumble that, you know, never happened. Never happened. It was overturned. It didn't happen. <sighs> Sorry, I brought that up. Okay. So we'll see if Joe Burrow is going to be a Bengal. Uh, I would take Joe Burrow if I'm the Cincinnati Bengals, and I wouldn't have a second thought about it. So he'd be there for five years, and he can get over it if he doesn't want to be there. Now, the Michigan State job is open. As you know, Mark D'Antonio resigned this week. Uh, Luke Fickle was rumored to be up for the uh, Cincinnati job, and I think he should, or excuse me, up for the Michigan State job, and he should be up for the Michigan State job because Luke Fickle, in my opinion, would be a grand slam hire for Michigan State. Michigan State would be a strikeout decision for Luke Fickle, in my opinion. I've written a story on SI.com 
backslash college, backslash Ohio State, why Luke Fickle should turn down the Michigan State job. Let me summarize it for you. Mark D'Antonio cared more about Mark D'Antonio than he cared about Michigan State's program with the timing of his resignation. He could have resigned after the season, and he would have forfeited the $4.3 million that he got as a retention bonus on January 15th. And you can say, Bruce, who would do that? Well, somebody would do that who's already, A, made enough money, which I'm sure he has, and B, who wants the program to succeed going forward. Because if it doesn't, it's going to be a hit to Mark D'Antonio's legacy. Because people are going to not absolve him from the fact that he put the next coach in a bind by resigning when he did and not recruiting well the last two or three years. Mark D'Antonio should have resigned in December. It's bad timing. If Luke Fickle leaves and goes to Michigan State, he's walking out on a class of recruits that he's recruited at Cincinnati that, by the way, is rated higher than the class D'Antonio signed at Michigan State. That's a bad look for Luke. It's a bad look for any coach. Those players can all request waivers from their school. Cincinnati does not have to grant that waiver. And to go to Michigan State on scholarship, Michigan State has to have a scholarship for you. What do you want Luke Fickle to do? Tell the guys who signed with Michigan State, who, by the way, he can't get rid of for a year anyway, that he's going to bounce them and bring in his own guys? Does that look good for Luke Fickle? No. So Mark D'Antonio's timing put Luke Fickle in an impossible situation with recruiting. Number one, Luke's got a better class at Cincinnati. Number two, how are you going to navigate that scholarship available, not available, released from scholarship, not released from scholarship? I want the guys from Cincinnati released. I want to kick these guys out of here. That looks bad for Luke Fickle. D'Antonio put him and anybody taking over at Michigan State in that situation. So that's a terrible place to be. You don't want to walk into a situation where you don't know if you're going to be on probation, have scholarships taken away. Mark D'Antonio and his administration can say all they want to that this lawsuit is a bogus lawsuit. It's not proven it's a bogus lawsuit until the NCAA looks at it and rules on it. And the thing about lawsuits that are scarier for a program than an NCAA investigation, the NCAA cannot subpoena you and make you tell the truth. They can threaten you with not telling the truth, but they can't subpoena you and put you in jail for perjury if you don't tell the truth. A lawsuit is subjected to discovery, depositions, and the threat of jail time for lying under oath. So I wouldn't feel comfortable walking into an undefined situation like Michigan State is if I'm Luke Fickle. That's reason number two. Reason number three, Luke Fickle shouldn't take the job. And you'll notice I haven't given what everybody thinks is the obvious reason, which is, holy smokes, you're coming into the same division as Ohio State. That's a really good reason not to go. But I don't think Luke's afraid of a challenge, so I didn't even include that on my list of three reasons. The third reason why Luke Fickle would be dumb, unwise, too big of a risk to take the Cincinnati job, he doesn't know who his boss is going to be. The athletic director at Michigan State is a guy named Bill Beekman. I think it's Bill. I know it's Beekman. He was the secretary of the Board of Trustees. He had no history in big-time college athletics. How do you go from secretary of the Board of Trustees to athletic director at Michigan State? Well, Mark Hollis, their athletic director, who was very well thought of in the business, was caught up and fallout collateral damage of the Larry Nassar scandal, the horrendous, heinous doctor who abused all those 
poor young women, those unfortunate young women who trusted him and he betrayed their trust and, and put them through horrible emotional trauma, physical trauma, and he's rotting in jail where he should be. So Hollis loses his job over that, and they appoint this Beekman guy. Okay, so now he was appointed by an interim president at Michigan State, and now they've hired a, a new president. This new president's going to eventually want his own guy running athletics because, as Gordon Gee told me one time, more presidents get fired over hospitals and athletics than anything else. You don't get fired over the business administration curriculum. You get fired over athletics, and you get fired over hospitals. So he's going to want his own guy running athletics. So if Beekman hires Luke Fickle, someday Luke's going to pick up the phone to talk to Beekman, and Beekman's not going to be there. Some other guy's going to be there. Now, he might be a guy that Luke likes. He might not be. That guy might want to hire his own football coach. So there you go. That's a reason. Tell me, in your business, in your corporate life, have you found it more pleasant to work for somebody who hired you or somebody who inherited you? Boy, in my life, I'd much rather work for the person who hired me. I had guys at the plane dealer who inherited me. Ah, Once it went well, a couple times it didn't. I had a guy in radio who inherited me at the fan. He was phenomenal. Then he left, and I had another guy who inherited me. Disaster. So it's just a, it's a crapshoot when somebody inherits you. A total crapshoot. Uh, and that's why Luke Fickle should run kicking and screaming. It made sense in December. It does not make sense now. What do you think the worst Luke Fickle is going to do at Cincinnati is in the AAC? What's the floor? Nine wins, I'd say. He's going to win nine games every year. He's won 11 the last two years. He might get in a playoff as the best Power 5 team. So the floor at Cincinnati is nine wins. Now, what's the ceiling at Michigan State? Now, I'm not saying in a single season they went to the playoff in 2013. I get it. They can, you know, fire their cannon every three, four years and maybe take Ohio State down, although that looks less likely now than it was when Urban first got here and D'Antonio had already been at Michigan State and had built his program up. But... What's the typical annual average wins for Michigan State? You think Michigan State would be happy if over a five-year period they averaged nine wins a year over five years? They'd be over the moon. Are you kidding me? They'd be over the moon if they averaged nine wins a year. So the floor at Cincinnati is the ceiling at Michigan State. I'm not saying in terms of prestige or ranking. Not saying that. I'm just saying Luke Fickle is early enough in his coaching career that he can afford to win nine games a year at Cincinnati for another two or three years, and the shine's not going to come off Luke Fickle's resume. He's several years away from winning nine in a year at Michigan State. And in that interim period, that next three or so years at Cincinnati, that he continues to win at a high level, and he will, Does the Notre Dame job come open? Does the Penn State job come open? Does the Kentucky job come open? I'm not sure Kentucky's a great place for Luke to go, but he's got to go somewhere where he can recruit Ohio. Oh, does the Ohio State job come open in three or four years? Is Ryan Day going to get curious about what he could do as an NFL head coach? Chris and I believe he will. So, yeah, Michigan State in December made perfect sense for Luke Fickle. Michigan State right now, it makes no sense 
for Luke Fickle, as far as I'm concerned. So that would be my advice to Luke, to uh, say thanks, but no thanks, and let somebody else go in there. I mean, hey, what would be wrong with Michigan State uh, giving Mike Tressel a shot for a year? See how he does. Maybe they'll make him the head coach. Maybe not. Uh, Emails and reviews to wrap up the show, and then we'll do a quick faith thing and get you on your way. Uh, last week, of course, we talked about Super Bowl halftime show. I put it out there that I thought it was uh, not suitable for viewers of all ages. I asked for women to email the show and tell us what impression the J-Lo and Shakira halftime show. I'm trying not to prejudice uh, you with com- any more commentary. You know where I stood on it. Uh, here's uh, Sarah's comment. You can email the show, Podcast at gmail.com. By the way, you can also... Watch us on YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. But we'd love for you to review the show on iTunes. That helps us know whether you like our content. It helps us with iTunes ratings. And you can email the show, Podcast at gmail.com, which Sarah did, and here's her email. Hey there, I occasionally listen to your podcast with my husband. We were driving from Cleveland to Chicago. Heard your conversation about the Super Bowl halftime show. Thought I'd weigh in about what females thought about the halftime show and the obvious objectification of women. Admittedly, Sarah says, I didn't watch it all, but I saw a couple highlights and enough pictures to get a good idea what it was all about. I think it's a shame that the Super Bowl claims to care about human trafficking, and then they support the objectification of women like this. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. As a woman, I think we can celebrate the strength, beauty, and talent of women without sacrificing our dignity. For Pete's sake, I can't even cover myself while breastfeeding my child without getting comments or glares from men and women alike. But we'll watch women dancing on stripper poles in a public televised event without batting an eye? Seriously? Events like this year's halftime show make me think of Sodom and Gomorrah or the city of Babylon in Scripture and how they love pleasure and lacked integrity and uprightness. And in the end, they're destroyed. It's shameful, but I suppose I can't expect anything else from sinners whose lives are not committed to Christ. There's my take. Celebrate women, but not by stripping them naked and making them dance for you. Here's the deal. Uh, thank you for the email, Sarah, very much. Here's the deal. As much as I would love for everyone to like me and to like all my takes and agree with my opinions, the truth of the matter is, and Sarah demonstrates it here, that last line referring to that as sinful behavior, and some of you are recoiling at that, and I understand it. If you don't look at life through the same prism and order your life the same way, as someone else, if you don't put as your top priority what that person puts as their top priority, you aren't going to agree on some things. You just aren't. This is probably the Super Bowl halftime show is probably one of those things. There are issues in politics and issues in all sorts of areas where that's going to happen. And so... Just be aware of that. But, you know, hopefully, as Chris and I have talked about, you can have a conversation respectfully without yielding your opinion, and uh, hopefully you can each enlighten each other. Email from Brock, SpielmanHooleyPodcastGmail.com. He says, uh, glad to get to email you guys again. Uh, talks about the wellness challenge that Chris gave to cycle, step, and walk 6,000 miles this year. He says, although I started over a year ago well before Chris's challenge, I still felt it relevant Last year, I was facing so many challenges still unto this day. 
Uh, in a previous email, I told you my father has an incurable illness that has wreaked havoc on our family and especially my well-being. Late last year, I lost my grandfather to cancer. The loss was so unspeakably hard for me that I completely shut down and lost all self-control when it came to food. Depression, anxiety, and anger ruled my life, and the next thing I knew, I was almost 300 pounds. I've always been an active person. I've never even been close to being this heavy. I struggled to even tie my shoes without losing my breath. I was finally warned by my doctor that not only was my blood pressure through the roof, but that, was, that I was developing signs of diabetes. If I didn't change my habits, I would be in deep trouble. I decided my circumstances needed to change and that none of my family, and especially my grandfather, would want me to let his death be the reason I let myself go and let my health become so poor. I began exercising, which had never been a problem for me, but this time around, I began to track what I ate and count calories on a fitness app. This is a huge deal for me as I've never been a calorie counter or health nut, but the older I get, I realize exercising wasn't going to be enough. I don't struggle with drugs, women, or alcohol, but the enemy attacks me with deep bouts of depression and anxiety and anger. And that manifests itself in my food and eating habits. I'm proud to say I've now lost over 100 pounds and have been logging my food and exercise for over 400 days. I've attached pictures so you can see the transformation. I want to thank you both for your continued support through the podcast. Bryce says he's listened to, or Brock says he's listened to us since he was 14 years old. That's really, really sweet and uh, and humbling to hear. And man, these pictures are amazing, Brock. Great, great, great job. Yeah, this reminds me, um, he had an aha moment where he got really heavy. Uh, doctors talked to him. He probably looked at himself in the mirror. He probably experienced some inability to do some things that he was able to do before. Change occurs when the pain of not changing exceeds the pain of changing. He clearly did not feel well. He was motivated by his love for his grandfather and what his grandfather would want for him. I have been in that situation where a picture of myself I've looked at and gone, holy smokes, dude, you are letting yourself go. This is ridiculous. And I've had that happen to me three or four times in my life, and every time it's motivated me to make those changes that are less painful than staying the way I was. And um, that is where you have to get. You have to Once you set your mind on something and you become determined, it's easier to make those changes. But for me, the big challenge of losing the weight is not reordering my eating habits. It's not exercising. It's purposing. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to lose 35, 40 pounds. I'm going to get in good shape. I'm going to get to the point where I don't have to buy new clothes. The clothes in my closet fit. So uh, you have to you have to get to that point where you decide that the pain of changing is worth the sacrifices you have to make. The pain of changing is less than the pain of staying where you are. So uh, that seems a good time to transition to the uh, faith portion of the podcast. I'm going to say a year ago today, even though today's February 7th and a year ago today was February 8th, I'm going to say that a year ago today the zone folded. The zone folded. Uh, I don't know if I've ever told the story. It's about 10 till 9 on a Friday. The program director of the station comes in, asked me if I'd stop by his office after the show. I said yes. That was a very common thing. I stopped by his office routinely. We'd sit talk. Um, in this instance, I knew instantly something was wrong. God put that, gave me a little advance warning. I just knew there was something. This was not not going to be a good meeting. And I said that to my friend Eric Reeser, who's still at uh, 610, still in the iHeart family, which I'm thrilled for that Eric didn't get uh, downsized like the rest of us. 
I said to Eric, he said, what's that about? I go, it's, uh, it's a meeting and it's not going to be good. He goes, why did he say it's not going to be good? I said, no, I just know it's not going to be good. Eric's like, ah, you're paranoid. It's like, you haven't said anything controversial. You're it's like, everything's fine. He's like, you're, you're, you're paranoid. I'm like, nope, this is not going to be good. <laughs> and I walked into the meeting and there sat the big, big boss with a manila envelope that was, you know, my contract and my, my separation agreement. And they said very nice things about my work and said they wished that the station had been more profitable, but it wasn't profitable enough to continue, and they were going to bounce everybody. And so it's a blur at that point in time. Um, they walked me out of the building, even though it was, uh, it was um, cordial. And ever since then, you know, I've been out of work and struggling to find a spot, and uh, yet I've told the story many times that everything else in my life is better because that's what I was praying for at the time, and that's how God answered my prayers. He gave me time to order my life spiritually, to really concentrate on being the kind of husband I wanted to be, to concentrate on being the kind of dad I want to be. And so, you know, keep in mind, when you pray for answers, God will often answer in a way that you wouldn't choose his answer, but you would definitely choose the long-term answer, the way he brings about the answer, okay? So... In that realm, let's share with you briefly here. One of the things I've done since a year ago is every morning I sit down and whatever the date is, today's February 7th, I would purpose that day to, among other things in my Bible, read a chapter from Proverbs corresponding to the date. So it's February 7th. Today would be the day that I read Proverbs 7, chapter 7. Now, it just so happens that I read ahead today because I actually, knowing in my, in my head that I lost my job on February 8th, I decided, okay, well, you're going to talk about it today, so read Proverbs 8. I've read Proverbs 8 now 12 times since last February. And I find it interesting. In my life, I've often prayed for wisdom. I want to do the right thing, Lord. I want to make the right decision. We're thinking of buying this car, that car. We're thinking of this home repair, that home repair. We've got a friend going through this or that. What advice do we give them? We've got a situation raising our kids. What do we tell them? How do we handle this? They want to do this. Should we let them? Blah, 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 blah. you got things in your life, I'm sure, where you're looking for wisdom. And my excuse too often has been, boy, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what God's will is. I don't know what the wise decision to do is. I just don't. And I have fooled myself because in those situations, I know probably what to do. It's just a lot of times I don't want to do it or it's uncomfortable to do it. I don't want to say that to my friend or I don't want to have to go there or I don't want to give this much or, you know. So I'm reading Proverbs 8 today and I wondered if this resonates with you the way it did with me. When I'm looking for wisdom, God doesn't play three-card money with wisdom. He doesn't hide the ball. He's not Lucy pulling the ball away when you're trying to kick the wisdom ball between the goalposts of life and win the game. And Proverbs 8 proves it. Listen to this. I'm just going to read like the first three verses. Proverbs 8.1. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gates leading into the city. At the entrances, she cries aloud. So what that's saying is wisdom is not quiet 
Wisdom is not hard to find. If you're in a crowd of people and you want to be heard, don't you raise your voice, talk louder? That's what this says wisdom does. Does not wisdom call out? You not raise your voice? That's what this says. Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights along the way where the paths meet. Okay, if you want to get to the most people, would you stand on one road or would you stand where two roads come together? Stand to reason. More people would be where two roads come together. That's what this says. Wisdom is on the heights along the way. Why would it be on the heights? Well, you know, if you're in a crowd of people and you really want to be heard, stand on a box. Get your head above everybody else so your voice projects. That's what this says wisdom does. Wisdom's very easy. Beside the gates leading into the city, where are there more people? In the city or out in the country? More people in the city. At the entrances, she cries aloud. Well, you can't get in unless you go to the entrance. That's where everybody's got to pass by. So that's instructive for me. I know what God wants me to do with my money. I know what he, how he wants me to act morally. I know what he wants to do with my time. I know how he wants me to treat other people. I know he wants me to stand for truth, even though sometimes it's uncomfortable. His wisdom's not elusive. It's not hard to find. It's not Tyreek Hill in the open field. It's easy to catch. It's easy to find. It's standing on a box, calling out at the gates of the city where the paths meet. I just got to listen to it. I just got to listen to it. So uh, that's what I have for you in the faith realm today. Looking forward to seeing what the basketball Buckeyes do at Wisconsin. Boy, that'd be a big win. That'd be a really big win for Ohio State. I'm headed down to Ohio State today to talk to uh, Chris Holtman and maybe more than one player. We got C.J. Walker the other day. Um, way Caleb Wesson played the other night at Michigan. I'm thinking we're going to get Caleb Wesson today. A little bit of uh, update on Luther Muhammad. I've filed a story on si.com backslash college backslash Ohio State about the trades of Kata Bates-Diop, Evan Turner, and who's the other one? Oh, uh, D'Angelo Russell. Also a story on Kerry Combs returning to OSU, and I'll have something on the Basketball Buckeyes this afternoon. So enjoy your weekend. Stay safe in the snow. Spiel's back Monday. We'll talk to you later.